Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is a guy who was a dropout. Dude, it feels like there are a lot of people who say that they're dropouts, but I feel like with you, Edrizio, you really were just kind of not as motivated as I would have expected somebody who succeeded as well as you had. Um, anyway, we'll get into that in the interview. I should actually, first of all, introduce you. Uh, you are Edrizio de la Cruz. I invited you here because you created Arcos, the company that became Arcos after changing so much I found over the years. Um, it's a payment as a service platform that you built and sold to MasterCard. And I wanted to find out how you did it. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first you you know of, it's Origami. It is connected to Y Combinator. And we'll talk about them and how they create DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And the second, if you're at all anyone out there interested in hiring developers or you or anyone in Y Combinator, you should know about Lemon.io slash Mixergy. But I'll talk about those later. First, Excellent. Thank you so much, Andrew. Happy to be with you. Dude, did I see you wince as I gave that intro? Did I get something <laughs> off? I did, didn't I? No, what no, was no. it? Be open with me. No, nothing. Okay. I'm trying to read you. I, I don't know you that well because truthfully, you haven't done a lot of interviews. You did a few in the early days and then I feel like you're in heads down mode mostly. When we talked, you said, you know what? After all this, I thought I was going to go and retire and I didn't. You had a good exit. How much did you sell oh, to MasterCard for? I can't disclose that. I'm sure they have lawyers all the time looking at it. <laughs> Reviewing podcasts and see, but, but, it, but it was successful. Uh, everybody was happy. Every investor was happy. Even former employees are happy. So very fortunate on the timing uh, right before the recession. Uh, but overall, yep. aside from the economic value, I just got a lot of the experience. I just learned a ton. You personally ended up with millions of dollars personally and not a need to continue to work if yeah, you was, decided was not to. Am I right about that? Definitely life-changing. For me and my family. Life-changing. Uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up not yep. wealthy or do not come from wealth, quite the opposite. So to see the, the morning that I woke up and saw the wire hit my bank account, it looked like a phone number. So it was, <laughs> it was, I was very excited to see that. Uh, so, but besides the financial value, just the, the experiential value of going through the process, learning so much from other people, it's something that I just want to kind of pay for. I want to find out about your background in the Dominican Republic and why you dropped out and so on. But first, let's just make sure that we understand what Arcos is. If I understand it right, the big benefit is if somebody wants to buy something and they don't have a credit card, they could pay for it, even if it's an online or digital product, using cash. And if they've been paid by someone and they just want to cash out, they can cash out. And that's one of several features. But yeah, am I right about the, that the feature? Core the core value feature. of what we built was a household bill paid in Mexico. So before we came along uh, to mm -hmm. pay a household bill pay, you would need a, a physical form. Uh, you have to go physically into a store uh, and they would scan it in the store and you have to pay cash. And it was very hard to transpose that experience over to a mobile app. Uh, we were able to create an API on top of all of the household bills. So think of your electricity, gas, water, uh, where any fintech, any bank could plug into our API and serve up, serve up a very um, elegant consumer user experience inside of the mobile app. Uh, we started that company, started working on bill pay around 2013. Uh, luckily, 
there was a fintech boom in LATAM, uh, which we were able to partake of. So companies like Neobank, Rabi, uh, and several others kind of started using yeah. us around 2018, 2019, and we just grew like wildfire. And why would Rappi, which is the delivery service in South America, why would they need to use you to do what? Well, they, they launched something called Rappi Pay. I think this is public. Uh, and they wanted to help their consumers pay their bills instead of Rappi Pay. Uh, Bill Pay is one of, if not the stickiest financial product, because it's inherently monthly mm. by nature. And people got to pay their bills, right? People got to keep the lights on, keep the water running. Uh, and there was no easy way for consumers to do that. Uh, thanks to our API, we made that process seamless. So they could pay for their electric bill, water bill, that kind of a thing, with credit cards and cash, if I understand the way that yeah, you powered the cash it. Am I right about came, that? came out later towards the tail end. Uh, okay. But yeah, it was either, it was kind of a payment rail agnostic uh, because, uh, and it had to become okay. that because uh, obviously LATAM is probably not as highly banked as developed countries like the US or Canada. Uh, but we started with credit cards, a payment rail, oh, and then that. added cash, the payment rail later on. Am I right that you were a little less ambitious? Like you came to America from Dominican Republic and you ended up dropping out of school and and working in aviation. Am I right about my assessment? Am I right about the history? Um, Catch me I up think I'm the opposite anything. of less ambitious. <laughs> I've never met someone more ambitious than me. <laughs> so then here's the deal. So you come to yeah. you come to America, 18, you drop out of college and you become an airline mechanic. Why? Why would you be such a smart person? I think a Wharton graduate. Am I yeah, right about I think that? Different people come from different backgrounds, Andrew. So in my circumstance, I, okay. I had to drop out because I had to help my parents. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't have that necessity. Uh, perhaps their, their parents are educated. Okay. Their, perhaps their parents uh, have high-paying jobs. Uh, I left the Dominican Republic, went to the South Bronx, grew up in Harlem. I was in a situation where I needed to help my parents. They, they have made a big sacrifice for me to you know, come and immigrate uh, and, and lead their life so I yeah. can have a better life. So after being in the Air Force for one year and being in college for one year, uh, my initial goal was to become an airline pilot. So I was going to take the military route uh, and decided, well, yeah. I can do that or I can drop out of that track and take on a job as an aircraft mechanic to make help against me. Uh, and maybe I'll pick that up later or maybe not. So I went, I went at 18, 19 and decided to become an airplane mechanic, took on two jobs, worked like endlessly, uh, saved enough money to put a down payment on a house. We bought a house in Queens and around age 21, 22, decided to go back to college. I knocked on every door, uh, every school, everyone rejected me. Uh, I wound up going to a community college in Queensboro. Uh, didn't necessarily love it. Uh, but I became enamored with the whole notion of just learning and being a sponge, learned about Wall Street, became enamored with Wall Street, not necessarily because of the money, but because of what it represented, uh, success. Uh, and even though I was so geographically close to Wall Street, uh, I felt miles away. Uh, so I actually wound up transitioning into Peru College, which was in, in downtown. Uh, and then I ultimately kept on knocking on doors at banks 
every back rejected me. They don't want a 25 year old kind of college dropout, drop in. <laughs> but I wound up getting an opportunity to um, basically intern at UBS Investment Bank. Sorry. I wound up getting an opportunity to intern at UBS Investment Bank and uh, became an investment banker. Ah, uh, so you know what? I think I read too much into an article that I saw about you, which was that you were a mechanic and then it wasn't until you did it for three years that you said, I'm done with this. I can't live this life that you moved on. You couldn't do anything else, you're saying. You had mm-hmm. to help your family earn money as quickly as you could. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then eventually you did go to the Wharton uh, to the Wharton School back in 2009. All right. So then why'd you leave investment banking? You ended up getting a job there. From what I saw on your LinkedIn profile, you're working at Pegasus mm-hmm. for about a year and a half. And then you went to Startup Chile. Why? Well, yeah, I think I just, when I transitioned from being a mechanic to being an investment banker, that, that was a major transition. I mean, I kind of traded my coveralls for, for a Brooks Brothers suit. And what I discovered at, at JP Morgan was that uh, who you spend time with is who you become. Just so by virtue of submerging yourself in kind of this ecosystem where a lot of people uh, have high intellectual horsepower, come from great backgrounds, speak a different way, interact a different way, think a different way, uh, you yourself adapt to that environment very quickly. Um, and I really love that. I love I love feeling uncomfortable with the fact that I may not be as smart as anybody else, but I want to outwork everybody else and I'm going to wind up out executing everybody else by virtue of that. So I, that was a bit intimidating, but I really enjoyed that aspect of being kind of the underdog. And what I discovered is a lot of my coworkers have come from Ivy League schools and I knew that I needed to be able to compete uh, so lo and behold, I started looking at Ivy League schools, uh, uh, and that year, the number one ranked business school in the world was Wharton. And my theory is, if you go big or go home. So I applied to the number one, and I got in, thankfully. Uh, and and it was a, quite a transformative experience. I loved it. The original idea for what is now Arcos um, was to enable people to manage their family's finances overseas. It was called it, Regali. Yeah. Exactly. Am I right? Yeah. So why is it when I saw old photos of you and your co-founders, your t-shirts for Regali had a gift box on yeah, top so, of it? Yeah. So Regali means regalo, which is a gift uh, in Spanish. So the mm. initial concept came from my own experiences uh having received remittances and then coming over to the state and sending remittances. The initial concept is how do we productize remittances? Because it's it's very expensive to send money and also very dangerous to go pick up money and move it around physically in in Latin. Mm-hmm. So meaning someone in the US might mm-hmm. send a family member in Latin America some money that family member would have to go into a store and pick up a wad of cash, put it in often her purse and walk home. And that's expensive. But then on the other side, it's dangerous. And you said, you know, there should be a better way. And your better exactly. way was what? So we've, we've learned that a bulk of the remains funds are used to pay household bills, gas, electricity, water, cable, cell phone. So we decided, why don't we just bypass the cash exchange and create a direct path to pay the household bills 
from the U.S. to LATAM. And that was the initial concept. That's what uh, Regali uh, came out as. And then you pivoted. Why did you pivot? What was going on with Regali? Yeah, so we, we learned a lot. Uh, and, and I think one of our key lessons that I learned very early on, because at the time we had come out of Y Combinator, went to Tech Disrupt, uh, became finalists, raised a lot of money, and we were kind of drunk on our own power <laughs> or getting high on our own supply, meaning we had raised a lot of money. We had a uh-huh. lot of notoriety and started spending a lot of money uh, on a product that wasn't taking off. Uh, so it took us a while to, to pivot. Um, and what I learned quickly is that you know, racing around doesn't solve all your problems. You still have to get product market fit. Uh, and we weren't getting product. Which part was not? I guess it was the people in the U.S. who were not willing to do this, or was it people in Latin Great America question. who said, I don't want my family member to have full Great access? Question, yeah, Andrew. what happened? Uh, this is actually the latter. So what we discovered was that uh, remittance is, in essence, a, a two-sided market. Uh, there's a sender and a recipient, and we put all of our energy on the sender when we should have learned more about the recipient. And in this sense, the, the recipient mm. they didn't want their funds to be controlled. Uh, the recipient typically was a, 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 a young mother or a wife that was on the other side, and they didn't want those funds to be controlled. They wanted the flexibility to do whatever they wanted with, with those funds. Uh, and by the time we realized that we were kind of too deep in. Yeah, I do remember you saying things like um, in old articles, once you can pay someone's finances, you can give them more guidance. You can help out. And it's kind of like I, I will see when I was living in San Francisco, family members who were clearly financially savvy helping out their parents who often weren't by managing their finances and investments. And it was that kind of a thought. But I guess when it comes to daily household expenses, you don't want your know-it-all kid exactly. guiding you. And that's what, that's you what discovered. we discovered. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, you'd built this infrastructure, and I'm curious about how you decided what to do with it. But first, let me tell you about my first sponsor. It's Origami. You know a little bit about this because you're a Y Combinator alum. And as I understand it, a bunch of Y Combinator people got together in this chat community to talk about these crypto investments that they made individually. Then they said, hey, you know what? Let's form a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization where we all get to invest together. And so they did it. It recently announced that it uh, raised over $80 million. They're huge investors in their own right, this DAO. Are you familiar yeah, with them, with Orange? They're doing great. They're doing great. They're like the, one of the best funded and most respected investors in the crypto space. Well, one of the founders and many of the early participants got together and said, why don't we help other organizations create DAOs like this? And so they formed a company called Origami, and Origami creates these DAOs. And they've done it for many people, including like the Kaufman Fellows who've gotten together and created a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization to invest. And anyway, anyone who wants to create a DAO knows at this point they could go to joinorigami.com and sign up and they'll help you create your DAO. But the thing that I want to say to you is if you're not sure what a DAO is, you should understand this method of organizing people and working together. And so I created a podcast with Origami showing success stories in the DAO space. It's kind of like Mixergy, but for DAOs. And I will do what I've done here, which is 
demystify, educate, and, and highlight the success stories. And so if you're interested, you should go to joinorigami.com slash podcast. Joinorigami.com slash podcast. That's super cool. Thank you. Yeah, you freaking Y Combinator uh, founders, you stick together, you help each other out. It's an amazing yes. organization. What did When you went through Y Combinator, what did they help you as far as thinking through oh, your business? So YC was transformative in, in its own right. Uh, when we went through it, it was much smaller. Uh, it was 50 companies. Now, I think the last batch was like 300 companies or so, or 250. Um, but the essence and culture remained the same, which was uh, learning from ex-founders who were partners at the time, uh, but also learning from your peers and kind of lifting each other as you climb. So you either get help by getting your peers as clients or getting your peers as testers or getting your peers as investors, all of which we tried, right, in, in the ecosystem. Like some of our best investors we're actually our peers in, in the batch. And and more than that, it's just a moral support. It's like a support group because it's such a tough, yeah. a tough journey. You know, they say misery loves company and it is true. Uh, and, and that's why I think people tend to stick together because you, you are going through the common struggle. Did they help you think through how to get more customers, how to do any of the early product yeah, market that, fit that stuff? Yeah, that is their bread and butter. Or I should say our bread and butter because... Uh, uh, yeah. So what did they teach you that worked and what, what wasn't applicable? Yeah, I, I think at the beginning, uh, they helped us, first of all, kind of uh, what I would call an attention diet. Uh, at the beginning, when you're a founder, you get caught up on a lot of vanity activities. Uh, think about talking to uh, lawyers, talking to press, talking to accountants, focusing on your logo. Those are vanity activities that don't really have anything to do with progress in your business and the number one banning activity which is talking to investors um uh so they told us at the beginning look stop focusing on all those things and concentrate for the next 11 weeks of a 12-week program in just talking to customers and getting users just get users on the platform talk to them learn from them and that's what we did we went out there and talked to users every single day and kept growing our user base weeks on end, I kept learning a lot of things and I kept kind of iterating the product, iterating the product until demo day we were able to present a kind of nice hockey stick graph showing our user growth. All right. And then as we said before, it wasn't it wasn't the right product market fit, but you'd built mm -hmm. all this infrastructure. Why wasn't it the right product market fit if you've done all that work at Y Combinator? Yeah, so it's very common for companies to pivot, uh, companies like Twitter, YouTube, uh, Instagram, all, all were different at the, at the beginning yep. stage. But I, I think at the beginning, what investors are looking for is uh, signals and, and growth are signals that even if this company is going to change, these guys can execute. Uh, and execution is a proxy for success. So at the beginning, we just focus on, on accumulating that learning. And as I alluded to earlier, what we discovered a year after graduating from YC was that we should have focused more on the recipient than the sender but the underlying infrastructure that we have built is what what ultimately we have today uh, at arcus which is instead of using that infrastructure for cross-border bill pay we used it for um, a domestic bill pay api in latin america and the customers for that were going to be who? uh 
for the, for the latter product, the, the product today. Uh, yeah, for the yeah, for so the Arcos our, product. Our, Who so now that you had this infrastructure where you could make payments via APIs and it was all organized, it wasn't going to be used by the son in exactly. America who's going to pay his mother's bill in Latin America. Who was it going to be so used So we discover uh, in the late 20 teens is that there was a, a desire from a lot of uh, banks, fintechs, retailers to engage their consumers with digital financial products. Uh, and what I mean by that is... <clears throat> How do we get customers on our mobile app, engage with financial products, and stay there, right? So if you were a bank, you had a financial app, you can get them onto your app, but they wouldn't stay and actively engage. Same thing with fintechs, same thing with retailers. <clears throat> so one of the stickiest products that exists is bill pay. People got to pay their bills every single month. If you don't pay your bills, they'll cut your electricity, they'll cut your gas, they'll, they'll cut your water. Um, but there was no easy way for uh, these banks, fintechs, or retailers to integrate into dozens of, of billers uh, in one single swoop. They weren't going to take the time to do one by one integrations. Um, so we wound up doing that and basically aggregating all of those integrations and making it seamless for any fintech or or bank to roll up and provide a very elegant consumer bill pay experience. How did you know that they were willing to pay for that? that there was a need in the first place and second that they were willing to pay an outsider to do that. We just kept knocking on doors, kept knocking on doors and, and kept iterating and kept launching the product with one customer, then another one. And then the first customer would kind of provide an intro to the next customer. And they liked it so much that it just became a, a, a word of mouth effect. And that's when we learned, okay, if the customers are talking to other customers about us naturally, then I think there's something here. Can you tell me about one of the early conversations that made you realize this was a market? Yeah, we talked to one early retailer that was launching an, uh, a payments app uh, in Mexico, uh, and, and they wanted people to pay their bills, pay their bills inside of that. So they had two options, either go integrate with 30 or 40 different billers across Mexico uh, or integrate with us, um, basically. And I see launched it and they had pretty good engagement at the beginning and they just kept getting better week over week uh and kept building the relationship and that relationship was parlayed into other other relationships and that's when we learned that okay this has something and then later on the banks came on and then the fintechs came on and it became kind of an entire ecosystem why couldn't they build it themselves I mean, this is a key part of what they do, move money around. Why couldn't they yeah, do this? I think one thing that just kind of like general rule of guidance, I think in, in the tech ecosystem periods, like businesses succeed better when they are focused on their core functionality. So a bank's core functionality is savings and loans. Uh, retailer's core functionality, uh, it's sell merchandise. Uh, fintech's core functionality could be something like savings and loans digitally. Uh, for neither of those three use cases that we serve was bill pay their number one core use case, but it would serve their core KPI, which is retention. So when you provide that usability to a to another company that that needs the product but doesn't have the resources or desire to go through a three year journey, I think that's kind of where 
you can hit a, a really good pain point. Okay. It still feels like for fin for banks being able to do bill pay, if not core, it seems important enough that they could do it on their own. No? Yeah. But banks move slow. No. Banks don't innovate. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Meanwhile, you could just give them the full yeah, solution all solution, in one, yeah. already done, exactly. and then keep adding yeah. to it, yeah. cash and so on. How did you know what else to keep adding? What new features to add? So we you know, we just looked at data. We looked at retention rates, usability, what kind of bills were people paying, um, what what kind of and what regions uh, were most in demand, uh, because you know, there's different billers in different regions. So we started off with the national billers like electricity, uh, water, and then went to kind of the long tail of billers, the smaller municipalities. Um, but predominantly, we, we just really relied on our customers on our, and, and let our customers kind of dictate the product uh, as opposed to having us dictate the product, let our customers kind of knock on our door and come back. And if enough customers would tell us we need this specific biller, this specific feature, then we would add it to the roadmap and prioritize it accordingly. I'm looking at photos of you from this period of your life. There's a lot of motivational words up on the screen. Uh, <laughs> or up on your walls. There's oh, no yeah, excuses. <laughs> there is push, which stands for persist until nice. something happens. Nice. Are you like a motivational books reader? Are you nice. self-improvement I, guy? I, I love you to your diligence. More, more than like any podcast yeah, ever. Man. I love that. Um, yeah, man, like a, a lot of, I think just because of my background, uh, I, I felt like I really couldn't rely on anything. I couldn't rely on like, network because they didn't have one. Uh, I definitely wasn't the most talented or most intelligent person. I just relied on, on hustle and grit. Uh, and I felt like uh, I'm just going to outrun everybody else. And that was always my my approach to life. Uh, and I brought that approach and that desire and that grit into, into Arcus. And I felt like that culture became personified throughout the fabric of the company's DNA. Uh, to this day, so do you have an example of of a way that you out hustled in the early days where you express grit and I don't know whatever this push type of personality is? How did you do that in the early days? Uh, the company's early days, or personal? Like it, personally, or at the company? I want to see what this kind of personality does, like in the real world. Sure. I think one example personally was was basically yeah. when I was. At Baruch trying to get a job in Wall Street. Uh, and Wall Street, I wanted to get a job in investment banking. Investment banks don't typically recruit from non-target schools, uh, especially aesthetic school. Uh, but I just chose to not believe that. I wanted to get a job as an investment banker because that was, not only was that the highest pay, but I felt like it was the pinnacle of success at the time. So I wound up interviewing at every bank three times. So I, I wound up getting rejected 33 times. I just, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I just kept going, kept going, kept knocking on the door until one time I, I, I snuck into a holiday party at UBS. Uh, I, I networked with everybody and they have, and I learned that they had one opportunity available for one internship. Uh, I applied, didn't hear back for months, but I kept asking and then I heard back, I got the interview and I got it. I got it the same day uh, and I was super happy. Uh, I, it wasn't for seniors, it was for juniors. So I had to become a junior again. I delayed my school year by one year. 
but I didn't care. I didn't care. I was like, this is what I want. And I'm willing to take a shot at this. And I'm willing to bet on myself. And I did. I bet on myself. And then I wound up getting an even better job at JP Morgan as a result of that. Uh, and it was great. I went from like making 35 grand a year as a mechanic to making 140 grand a year as an investment banker in a suit with a secretary. Wow. <laughs> so. All right. I want to find out about why you sold the company. But first, I should say my second sponsor is a company called Lemon.io. Dude. The founder of Lemon, Alexander, was in Ukraine. He was known for being Ukrainian and having Ukrainian developers that were available for hire for all over the world. Because he was Ukrainian, people kept asking him, do you have a local person there who's inexpensive but good? He, so anyway, he made a big business out of it. The war hits. He gets out because that dude is too much of a dork, I think, or not a dork, too much of a nerd, maybe I could say, to hold a gun, let alone to point it at anyone. He goes, I'm not going to be useful in a war. And if you look at him, you'll you'll see why. But he says, all right, I'm going to keep this company going somehow. He starts to realize, well, he can't find developers in Ukraine because they're all they're all fighting. He still has to support his team that are counting on him uh, to get paid so that they could feed their families. He starts looking all over Eastern Europe and other countries where there is a, de- a developer group that is solid but underpaid because they're underappreciated. He starts putting together a team of those people, and now... Yes, you can still hire from Ukraine uh, through his site, but also from other countries. He has been working like a crazy person to expand his pool of developers and keep up the service and grow it. And in fact, he has been growing it. And anyone out there who needs to hire developers should know you can get phenomenal developers. They will match you with them. So it's not like you just go into some kind of marketplace and have to figure it out for yourself. They'll match you. They'll make sure it's right and at a great price. And if you use my URL, you'll get an even lower price. And that URL is Lemon. .io slash Mixergy, lemon.io slash Mixergy. I'll be honest with you. They're not even paying for this ad. I just want to keep supporting this guy. I see his team. They're basically working night and day to keep things together. And so I said, uh, they their team said, Andrew, we can't keep track of these ads. When are they running? How are they? I said, it's not on a system. I just want to support what Alexander is doing over there oh, and what man. you guys are doing at Lemon. So that's anyway, that's what this is. <sighs> yeah. Great people. Why did you decide to sell? I mean, great exit, but why? Yeah. So in going back to the pandemic, we were um, raising a series B. Uh, then the pandemic hit, struggle. Everybody was hampered down. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, and we ended up raising a series, uh, our, our largest round from SoftBank and Citibank. And then we started conversing with MasterCard at the time. And we were growing. The business was actually growing we were super excited that we finally found and built something that people want after so many years of building a lot of things that people didn't want so it was, it was a great feeling uh but we also had issues scaling uh building infrastructure is a, is a long game unlike building a consumer product building a deep infrastructure it's a long game and it's hard to scale outside of you know, outside of one country, because you have to go to another country and rebuild that infrastructure, not only technological investments, but regulatory and compliance uh, investments, cybersecurity investments into that new country, which doesn't necessarily scale super well. And then we started looking to MasterCard, and of course, MasterCard being MasterCard had a great footprint throughout Latin. Um, and we had had a great relationship with MasterCard dating back to 2016, 2017, when we were part of the StarPath program which is our accelerator program. And it was just a very organic fit because they were looking for things that were directly aligned with our vision and mission. 
Uh, and after eight, nine years, we decided that was the next best step. Did you have some kind of, like, did they have an option to buy you or to match any offer for you? Was there any kind of relationship yeah. like that that incentivized no, no, there the was sale no, to them? There was no pre-existing relationship. No. Uh, it was... Uh, okay. It was just that you'd gone through their yeah, accelerator. Yeah, just more program. of an informal relationship that we had. And it just felt like, like okay. uh, their path was squarely aligned with ours. It's so interesting now to see your yeah. logo with their logo smaller yeah. all yeah. over. Like I'm looking it's to see, really, did I have this really right? Yeah, your logo gets priority on your product. They're just there yeah, to add no, some credibility to it. I mean, they respect the brand, they value the brand. Uh, we built a great brand in Latin, and I feel like that's some of the value that we bring on board because we have virtually every fintech and bank working with us already. Uh, but in terms of expanding south of Mexico, I think they're going to add a lot of value um yeah it looks like you're not in a lot of countries in south america you are in chile peru colombia um and i could see mm -hmm. the opportunity to grow there how did your life personally change after oh, that changed completely uh just ha having access to wealth uh, something that i'm just not used to didn't grow up with it uh i bought my wife a ring i, I told her that I had delayed the wedding, that the wedding ring for like five years, and I finally bought her a ring from Tiffany's. Wow. Uh, bought my dad a, a car, a Tesla. That was fun. <laughs> nice. I bought my, my wife's parents a car too. Uh, well, I was like Oprah at the beginning. Just, just, you get a car, you get a car, you get a ring. So it was just fun to be able to take care of people that love you and taking care of you so many yeah. years. Yeah. You know what? I grew up in New York too, in one of the outer boroughs. I there was this article that I read about you talking about going over one of the bridges and then just being oh, in all yeah. of the city and then going back home to your borough. Isn't that like one of the most ambitious things that you could do as a kid? Is grow up in in an outer borough and see what's possible on the other side, and then go back to your borough. Especially yeah. you were in the Bronx, right? I I was in Queens. Yes. Bronx was in a yes. worse situation than Queens. And to go back and go, there are two worlds here. I get to decide where I go, and it's not exactly. easy to get to the other one. But boy, I'd rather be there than here. Well, what was it yeah, like for you? Nailed it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, re I remember that day. That was the day that I I first came to the states. I was maybe nine or eight. Uh, my dad picked me up uh, in the airport. I was flying as an unaccompanied minor with my brother. Uh, picked me up at the airport. I never felt cold, never seen snow. He was driving the taxi at the time. He picked me up. Uh, and we went from the bandwick over Queensboro Bridge. And that's when I first saw kind of the glistening yeah. skyline pop up. And I was just in awe. I, I kind of pressed my, my face and hands against the window. And I was just in awe. And the next day I woke up in the South Bronx, which is a completely different world. <laughs> um, so to, to like, I always say the sweet and I see without the sour. So I think having gone through that experience very early on in my youth, really kind of contextualize being here now. Uh, it makes everything just that much sweeter. I am eternally grateful for everything now. Yeah. Um you're at yep. Y Combinator now. What are what are you doing there? Do you have an example of how you've helped somebody? One of the new uh, startups that 
Y Combinator yeah, so is accelerating? I'm, I'm a visiting partner at Y Combinator, same program that I went through in 2013. Uh, so my, my, my role there is uh, as a visiting partner is, is to help shepherd the next generation of companies. Uh, so in essence, I, mm-hmm. I not only help with interviewing companies, but also uh, help uh, advise companies that are going through the batch with the same exact issues that I faced when I was going through the process, which is how do you get customers? How do you hire? How do you iterate on the product? How do you know when to pivot? So fundamental issues that are, are kind of, I would say, industry agnostic. Uh, it applies to every company at that stage. Uh, and, and because thankfully I, I went through a process of spending nine years at a startup, I kind of saw a lot of ebbs and flows and I just want to get back. What about this? You know what? When I used to interview Y Combinator entrepreneurs, their stuff was so simple that it was easy to be dismissed. And to call it a feature, not a business, was almost an exaggeration because they were like little tiny nothings. Today, when I interview startups, I feel like they started with something so massive that it's hard to even think of them as a startup. It's almost like they're mini enterprise companies. Like even your company, we're not looking at like a bunch of guys with a website and hoping somebody's going to come to the website and buy into their idea that um, that renting uh, space in people's homes is a thing. You had financial institutions on your on your platform. I mean, even version one, you had a real tough, big business on your hands from the beginning. Is that what startups are now? What do you think? I think so. I think you make a lot of excellent points. So, yes and no. So, I think what's happening now is that big enterprises are no longer dismissing startups as a solution. Uh, I had to sound like an OG, but yeah, back in my day when uh, you would present uh, your startup idea as a potential customer to a big business, you will be dismissed. Uh, the, the notion of having a, an exec uh, at a major corporation uh, allowing you know, a startup to be a client was kind of a, an afterthought. But now it's actually something that's considered. Now, now you have big companies, Amazon, Google, fa- uh, Facebook, uh, you know, HP, big old school companies as well, like using startups as customers. And that, and that's something that exists today that did not exist five, 10 years ago, believe it or not. Um, so if you look at 10 years ago, startups main customers were either other startups or consumers. Today you have a third, a third consumer, which is enterprise. So I think that's why you're seeing kind of this evolution of, um, of growing a company, as you said. But also then that means that the minimum viable product exactly. is not so minimum anymore. It's a exactly. much bigger, more exactly. robust product, right? Which means you have to raise more capital quicker. So you have right. companies that are designed for enterprise start with smaller enterprise, with SME enterprises, and then raise around based on that, validate the, 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 the product, and then scale to, to bigger customers thereafter. You funded the business out of your own yeah. savings in the beginning. It, there's a reason why you couldn't get yeah. your wife a ring, right? How much were you able to build with internal personal yeah, I, money? I, I maxed out oh, my credit how much card, was whatever there? it was back then, like 30K or something like that, uh, to fund the, the, the. And so, what could you build for that just little a basic money? MVP, like like a, a website and a basic database of clients and 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 some marketing ad spend. That, that was it. Oh, you know what? I read that 
regarding hustle, I read that you said that in the early days you had some dude sit down and make payments for people. It wasn't oh, software. Yeah. It was like Steven's yeah, service Steven's instead of software yeah, yeah. service, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think it, it's I think it's called like the Wizard of Oz uh, kind of mechanical Turk uh, behind yeah. the curtain. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's something very common that most startups do is that you know you just have a website consumer interface and behind the scenes while you're building the product and validating the product, you just have somebody kind of execute the last mile of the transaction. So I see. So when I looked at your business, I saw, wow, this is a fintech company that takes a lot of money, a lot of relationships, a lot of everything. There is no minimal viable version of it. And you're saying, yeah. well, actually we had a guy who made payments, it was a pretty basic system. And then you're also acknowledging we had to raise money exactly. fast and we had to mm -hmm. raise a lot of it. And if I, uh, I had a note here about how much you raised, um, it was 19 yeah. million total. Yeah, raised total 19 million. All right. You're, you're writing a book, it's gonna come out 2023. Let's close out with yeah, that. The What's the book gonna be about? Yeah, the It's kind of, uh, highlights my journey from from selling guayabas uh, in in my neighborhood in Santo Domingo all the way to selling uh, the startup in Silicon Valley, uh, and the book highlights uh, seven lessons uh, catered towards the, the dark horse entrepreneur who did not grow up on third base. And my goal, Andrew, is just to help them go through the process of going from a half not to a half full in terms of being a, an entrepreneur. All right, and now I'm seeing also why. When I introduced you, I thought I saw a wince, and I see what it is. I read your history as not ambitious until he decided to quit this one job and go and actually take on the world. But no, the wince was, I wasn't born on third base. I took that job, the mechanical job that you're talking about, because yeah. I needed to take care of my family. I still had that burning desire and here's what I built with it. And now I'm helping entrepreneurs at Y Combinator do that. And I'm going to write a book to do that. And I'm going to continue yeah, and continue. Man. All right. I see it. I'm excited to have you Thank on you, here. Andrew. Congratulations Thank you, Andrew. on all your I love your what success. you're doing. I love what you built. Thanks. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you, everyone. And remember, if you're at all interested in what's going on in the DAO space, this is like early days there. I'm doing a series of interviews. Go to joinorigami.com slash podcast. And when you're hiring a developer, go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. Thanks. Bye, everyone.